1: In 2004, director Martin Scorsese and star Leonardo DiCaprio gave the world an epic film centered on an intimate portrait of mental illness. In 2019, Beam Suntory gives us a 12 year
0: Canadian whiskey.
1: The film is The Aviator. The whiskey is Canadian Club Classic 12. And we'll review them both. This is The, the film, and film and Whiskey, whiskey Podcast. Podcast. To the film and whiskey podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we're looking at the 2004 film,
0: The Aviator. Bradley, Robert. This is our second Martin Scorsese film. It is. The first one did not go over so well in your mind, but I still gave it an eight and a half. You still? That I was generous. I of don't me. understand your scoring system. That, I remember, like, you also said, "I hate everything about the Inglourious Bastards." And it's one of the best films I've ever seen. So I don't understand, like, what what your metric is for... See,
1: I think that there's a part of me that wants to be unbiased. Yeah. And I, that part of me comes out when I score it. But, but when isn't I actually the whole talk- point of this podcast to be biased about what you like and what you don't like? Yeah, when I actually talk about the film, I'm very biased. That's because true. I didn't like Goodfellas. You didn't. I, you know, I liked Inglorious Bastards well enough. There's parts of it that worked and parts of it that didn't work. So... It is what it is. Well, good thing that we've moved on. I I will never move on from your score on Goodfellas,
0: but we're moving on to The Aviator. Martin Scorsese's 2004
1: magnum opus about mental illness. See, magnum opus, I think, is a great use of words. I think this this is his unsung masterpiece. I completely
0: agree. And we're kind of already giving away what we think about it. But I don't think people have focused enough attention on this movie in Scorsese's catalog. It is... The level of detail he brings to it, uh, the mastery of the way that he moves this movie forward, even as a three hour runtime, It's incredible.
1: So do we want to just like skip the entire podcast? So just a give it scores now
0: and-, and then go drink whiskey off air somewhere. Yeah, that sounds good. OK, so no, we can't do that. We have an obligation to our listeners, Bradley. All, all of them, uh, all, <laughs> all of them. So this movie came out in 2004, directed, of course, by Martin Scorsese. It stars Leonardo DiCaprio the cast list on this 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 cast is stacked is so stacked leonardo dicaprio kate Kate blanchett kate not kate winslet come on man i'm the worst not titanic (laughs) kate blanchett yes alec baldwin alan alda kate beckinsale who else did we see pop up in this movie
1: john c riley john c riley adam scott adam Ben Adam Wyatt. Scott felt like your little brother that you're like, hey man, right. why, why don't you come do this movie with us? It's a, it's gonna be the best thing you ever do. Jude Law pops up. Jude, okay, Gwen Stefani's in it for some reason. There's one point where Adam Scott is sitting between Leonardo DiCaprio and Jude Law, and there's a small part of me that's like, oh, you're gonna have to go hang out with you know Leslie Nope for like 17. <laughs> this years. is you've peaked right you've now. Peak, yeah, right, yeah. So this
0: movie was nominated for 11 Oscars. It won five of them. Okay, it won for supporting actress, Kate Blanchett. It won for cinematography. It won for best editing, art direction, and costume design. Which means that it lost out on some of the bigger ones. It lost out on picture,
1: director, actor, supporting actor, screenplay. Like, so my question is, do we want to complain right now about Leo not winning the Oscar, or do we want to complain about that later?
0: Let's complain about it later because okay. we could do a whole podcast. I think this is to date Leonardo DiCaprio's best performance. That is a bold... It is a bold statement. I mean, and he's young here. And I think that some of the choices that he makes, he wouldn't make now. Yeah. But overall, you're talking about a three-hour film that he is in every scene of. He doesn't leave the screen. No, he doesn't. Yeah. And and he anchors it. Your eyes are on him, the entire film. It's incredible. So, as we talk about this movie, we are going to be sipping on some Canadian Club 12-year. I actually... We've already uncorked it. We'll give our review here in a little bit. But, uh
1: decently impressed
0: i'm decently impressed i'm less impressed than i am with the movie yes but decently impressed is a good
1: decently impressed that's right all right
0: so brad as we watched this movie this was your first time seeing it yep surprise surprise
1: yep do we want to give like a summary of it real quick
0: yeah why don't we just do a new segment on our podcast the newest of all segments brad's thoughts brad explains The Aviator. Why don't you give us a quick summary of what this film is about?
1: Yeah, so The Aviator is a film about the millionaire tycoon uh, Howard Hughes, Mm -hmm. um, who is an actual real life character. So this is a movie about a real person. You're off to a great start. Yeah, I'm doing great. (laughs) So Howard Hughes was a son of a, it was a drill bit empire, right? Mm -hmm. So his parents had this drill bit empire in Texas. So he's kind of got this weird, you know, little Texas drawl. That I don't know why I said weird. It wasn't weird. It was just a Texas draw. <laughs> Texas draw. Sorry, everybody from Texas. Uh, so he has this Texas drawl. A lot of people think he's very unassuming and, and kind of think he's an idiot because of this Texas draw, but he's actually a brilliant businessman who is very interested in two things. He's very interested in airplanes and aviation, and he's very interested in movies and filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And so he combines the two in this film in what was it, like 33, 34? Yeah, I think it finally came out in
0: like thirty—I uh, don't know, thirty-one maybe. I don't okay. know, but it—he was making it while while it was still time. silent film was the medium, right? So it took them that I think you know four years
1: or something to make this movie. It was insane. Yeah, so he made this film called Hell's Angels, and it was basically about World War One dogfights. So he had bought this massive air fleet. Uh, it was the largest private air fleet at the time, or so he claimed. And he made this movie, and this movie catapulted him into fame. And so, while he had this film business, he also had an aviation business. And so, as the movie progresses, you see him grow his film fame, as well as his aviation fame. He takes on military contracts, and it's all about him dealing with those things, while also dealing with debilitating OCD. Which is a mental illness that causes you to... I mean, he just is so focused and so anal about everything that yeah. it, it truly drives him into madness. It really does. And so the movie is about him trying to balance this madness that's within him while being a multimillionaire tycoon. Right. Who's trying to shoot movies. And it, it's it's fascinating. Yeah. And one of the things that I noticed on this watch is that
0: there's really no fat on this movie. Like it's three hours long. And yet every scene is somehow related to his disorder there's nothing extraneous there's really not like even the things that don't directly deal with his ocd you see how everything in his life builds to him sort of having these large breakdowns that he has so you know whether he's going to visit his girlfriend katherine hepburn's parents and the way that that scene is edited where they're just berating him and and it's a barrage of questions that he's getting you see how things like build up at a rapid pace that leads to these outbursts and breakdowns that he has and everything in this movie points towards those moments.
1: Yeah, I that actually was probably one of my favorite scenes of the movie mm. was when he's with Catherine Hepburn's family. Yeah. And he sees a different side of Catherine Hepburn. And like to me, that was one of the most relatable parts of the movie. Because how often have we you know been dating a girl or whoever you're dating how often have we been dating a girl it's been a while (laughs) (laughs) but like you go you go and meet the parents yeah and you meet the brothers and the sisters and the aunts and the uncles and it's your first christmas with the extended family and and you're meeting them all and you start to realize you're like man some of these people aren't great No, I'm well, not
0: a big fan. And, and you know, I don't pretend to be a counselor. That's not what my area of expertise is. But I have always been fascinated by family systems theory. Yes. People fall into roles in their family. And that's so brilliantly portrayed in Catherine Hepburn, this independent, driven person and how she falls into this role of being Katie in her family. Fascinating scene. But we'll get into those scenes in a minute. Let's yes. let's give some background information on this movie. This was Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio's second collaboration after 2002's *Gangs of New York*.
1: I've actually never seen *Gangs of New really? York*. Really? Huh. It's what it's one that's always been on my uh, radar. I want to watch it, yeah. but I've never gotten around to it. I'm I'm just waiting for the
0: day when I mention a movie and you're like,
1: "Oh yeah, I've seen that one." <laughs> See, the thing is, I've <laughs> actually seen a lot of movies. Okay, Brad. just not the ones that you talk about.
0: That's true. I just happen to only always dance around the ones you've seen. Yeah. So this movie had been in development for a long time. Actually, at one point, the Walt Disney Company was planning to make a, a Howard Hughes biopic with director Brian De Palma, who had made the first Mission Impossible, uh, the original Carrie in the seventies, really famous director. The star that he had in mind. This was back in like ninety seven. Nicolas Cage. Oh man. Nicholas Cage, in his own crazy way, would have been an amazing Howard Hughes. I was actually just thinking that. Not not a Howard Hughes that's going to win an Oscar, but the Howard Hughes that becomes, like, a meme. But the thing <laughs> is,
1: Howard Hughes didn't win an Oscar, even with Leonardo DiCaprio that's true.
0: playing him. So at the same time Disney was planning this with Nicolas Cage, Universal was trying to get in a Howard Hughes biopic. They wanted Johnny Depp to play Howard Hughes. Both of these fell through. Uh, in the early 2000s, the director, Milos Forman, who had done... One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Amadeus, Oscar winning director. Uh, He was in talks to direct a film about Howard Hughes and he wanted Edward Norton to play Howard. Hughes. That would have been a fantastic movie.
1: I would have loved to have
0: seen Edward Norton. I like Ed Norton a lot as an actor. Yes. I hear he's very difficult to work with in real life. But yeah. And then add to all this early in his career, Christopher Nolan was developing a Howard Hughes biopic that fell through after he finished The Dark Knight Rises in 2012. He picked up the idea again and he wanted to focus it on howard hughes's elderly years where he was basically living in a hotel like in vegas and was just like had dementia and was falling apart and he wanted jim carrey to play elderly howard hughes that would have been phenomenal and from what i hear the rumor is that he's still developing this we don't know if it's ever going to come to fruition or not but i'm all for a jim carrey christopher nolan howard hughes film especially at this point in jim carrey's life where he can just do whatever films he wants yeah absolutely so this movie though the one that we actually got martin scorsese directs it and it only focuses on about 20 years in howard hughes's life
1: which i was actually a little bit surprised by i i kind of expected the film to focus more on maybe the 30s yeah but it really spanned a decent amount of his life it did but it it
0: also wasn't your standard biopic where it's like You know, they show you overcoming something and then they show you getting old. Scorsese was actually really attracted to this movie because it only focused on the first 20 years of him dealing with this OCD. And he said he really liked the idea of portraying Howard Hughes when he was still young and he still had his whole future ahead of him. And he was kind of ready to take the world by storm. Yeah. But we know at the same time that Howard Hughes was dealing with obsessive compulsive disorder. And the way that they have visually decided to portray OCD in this film, really, I mean... You know, we throw OCD around as kind of a joke in our society, like, oh, I'm I'm OCD about cleaning my house. No, you're not. Obsessive compulsive disorder is debilitating. Yes. And what did you think about the way that Scorsese tried to frame it visually? Did you pick up on things that he was trying to do that kind of tipped off when Howard was having a spell of OCD?
1: Yeah, there there was something about the movie that moved moved so smoothly that you almost missed him moving into an OCD spell until he was halfway through it. Mm. Like, and I think Leonardo is such a good actor that he's able to kind of shake it off and, and like pretend like it's not happening. Right. But all of a sudden you're about a minute into it and you go, Oh my gosh, like he is about to break down. Yeah. And I, Leonardo just portrays that so perfectly where he truly is this millionaire playboy. And and he's able to get away from the public before that persona cracks. He
0: knows how to go hide himself when he needs to,
1: at least at first. Yeah, at first. And eventually he realizes he can't do that anymore. And he locks himself inside of his own personal theater for two, three, four months. I don't even know what it was. Yeah.
0: So DiCaprio and Scorsese did a lot of research in terms of how people real people with OCD dealt with this issue. And so DiCaprio went to, I think, UCLA. He spoke to one of the leading experts on OCD, and then he met with people with the disorder. And he really focused on how some of them, when he was talking to them, they had this compulsive need to wash their hands multiple times a day. And uh, that's actually what ended up inspiring the scenes of him going and scrubbing his hands super viciously because he noticed that it wasn't just that they felt like they were dirty or covered with germs, but these people with OCD it was kind of a thing that they fell into a routine that they needed to do to kind of reset themselves. And it was a way of getting their stress out as well, that they would start kind of scratching themselves. And it's really interesting tick that, that he picked up on.
1: Yeah. There's something about the bathroom scenes that kind of give clarity to the movie where, where the the movie is fast paced in its own right. Yeah. He really moves through things quickly, but there's enough bathroom scenes that all of a sudden you're in the bathroom again and nothing else is going on. Yeah. You're not distracted by other people by wow, all the glitz and glamour of the 20s and and he's just washing his hands and he's stuck. But even in those moments, that's where Thelma Schoonmaker's editing
0: comes in and is just um, incredible because he's washing his hands and they cut to like the towel sitting there and they cut back to him and then there's like a jump cut to him throwing the towel and it's so fastly paced that you don't you don't quite notice it at first, but it is stress inducing as a viewer to yeah. watch Howard get into this mindset that he's in
1: when when he when the other guy the gentleman in the bathroom asks for a towel the guy with crutches with yeah. crutches and, and and that scene just made me oh it just it's so good because you see a person with a physical disability yeah meet somebody with a mental disability yeah and both are frustrated with themselves you know i'm sure that the guy with crutches doesn't want to be asking another man could you hand me that towel right You know, so he's probably frustrated with himself. And then I assure you that Leonardo DiCaprio, Howard Hughes, is frustrated with himself for not being able to hand it. You can see the emotion pour off of Leonardo's face as he's just like, I I want to hand this man a towel. I know that I should hand this man a towel. But if I do, I might die.
0: Yeah. And then that's it. It really is a matter of life and death when you're when you're facing this disorder. It's not that he's just like, no, I don't want to do this. It's that. He physically can't bring himself to even reach over and hand him a towel because he's worried about the germs and he's worried about it throwing off the routine that he has to do to reset his memory in his mind. So Scorsese uh, started working with the uh, author of the script for this film really, really early on. And he said that they brought in Leonardo DiCaprio at an early stage because they wanted to craft the script in tandem with DiCaprio so that he could kind of start putting these little ticks into his performance. And when you watch the film back in like the first or second scene, DiCaprio starts doing that kind of blinky thing he does when he,
1: he Bob's doing the blinky I am. thing right
0: now. He does, though, but he starts doing it really, really early on. And he does. The, another thing that he does is he clears his throat a lot. Yes, because it keeps him from repeating himself. And you'll see, like when he finally does break down, he starts repeating things. So me I don't the blueprints, know if I know. show me the blueprints, but he goes <clears throat> a lot and it starts in like the first scene of the movie and now that I've seen it a couple times I'm watching for it and it's incredible how they weave the beginnings of this disorder all through the film
1: I understand you're under a lot of pressure but it's gonna do me no good if you crack up on me like that alright look take a couple hours off alright you just you relax a little okay Let's see you, why. okay show me all the blueprints all right. Blueprints. Yeah, blueprints. Serious now. Show me all the blueprints. Show me all the blue. Show me all the blueprints. 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 I want to get this done right. To show me all the blueprints. 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 Yeah. I don't know if I noticed thinking back. I don't know if I noticed the clearing of the throat as a sign of the ticks coming off. Yeah. Well,
0: even so like in the very first scene with DiCaprio filming Hells Angels You know, they bring in that meteorologist from UCLA. And I noticed this time around, he starts repeating himself. He starts going, find me some clouds, find me some clouds, find me some clouds. And then he leaves. And it doesn't seem like it's uh, part of his disorder at this
1: point, but it's sowing the seeds for it. I was going to say at this point in the movie, he just sounds like a rich, spoiled millionaire who's only 21, 22, that this old man who probably has way more experience than him in everything in life you know well find me those clouds and it it really does come off in a good way of like it sets the the precedent that he's just a rich spoil playboy right give me those clouds i want them now
0: but that's the thing that i love about this film is the rewatchability of it and scorsese has gotten better and better at this throughout his career if you go back and watch a film like shutter island a second time you see things you never saw the first time and with this movie It starts with that opening scene with DiCaprio shooting Hells Angels, and you notice it in the editing, even when he goes to the Coconut Grove for the first time, you get immediately introduced to what it's like to have OCD. It starts out. The shots are a little longer. The cuts don't come as quickly. And then all of a sudden you see him pull a cigarette out of Adam Scott's mouth and extinguish it. Uh, He asks for milk with the cap still on it. He says he won't go to Houston because there was an epidemic there 12 years ago. He wipes his hands with a napkin, and then the next shot is him kicking the napkin under the table. And you don't notice these things when you haven't seen the movie before, but then when you go back and watch it, you see he's already struggling with this in some capacity at a really, really young age. Let's talk about the opening scene. Oh, where young Howard... Yes. ...is kind of standing in a tub.
1: In Houston.
0: Yes. And his mom is, like, scrubbing him and teaching him the word quarantine.
1: Yes. Yes. Let's let's talk about that. Yeah, that, that scene initially i didn't know what to do with that i still don't quite know what to do with it is it is it that they're
0: setting up that his mom was kind of off her rocker a little bit and she was influencing
1: him or would give the sense that from what i understand ocd and a lot of mental illnesses can be genetic so was she influencing this idea of that wouldn't be genetic though that would be like a learned Behavior. But that's what I'm saying. Is it giving
0: both the both and a nature and nurture kind of?
1: Yeah. Thing. Not only did it was it in his nature to be predisposed or have OCD. Right. But he also was being taught there are dirty people out there that you cannot be in contact with. You need to be in quarantine. Yeah. I mean, there really was an actual
0: epidemic going on, so she may have had him in quarantine. I do love how they bring that word back throughout the film as his mechanism For calming himself down, he'll shut himself away and he'll spell out quarantine. And of course, it's a metaphor because he has to close himself off in his mind to the rest of the world and put himself in quarantine. And so the character is basically saying, if I if I'm going to survive, I have to shut everyone else out of my life. It's really interesting. little piece of writing, I thought. Very well done. Quarantine is kind of I don't know if you've seen Citizen Kane yet. I at some point, we'll watch Citizen Kane. But the the whole point of the movie for Citizen Kane, without spoiling it, is when Kane dies at the beginning of the movie, he utters this word rosebud, right? I, I know that you know this, but I'm just... I didn't know
1: that Kane dies. At the very beginning. It's not I a spoiler. I literally
0: don't know anything. Yeah, so it starts with his death, and the last word he says is rosebud. Okay. And the whole movie is this reporter talking to people who knew Kane, trying to figure out what was rosebud. Why was that important to him? Quarantine, as a word in this movie, is kind of like... Rosebud and Scorsese actually went on record and said, I wanted to give that word quarantine a certain mystery. I wanted it to have a sense of menace. You feel like his mother is overprotective, but she probably had good reason to be. Howard was her only child. An outbreak of cholera had just killed 2000 people in Houston. So at what point didn't the mother go overboard? And also there seems to have been a history of OCD on his mother's side of the family. And so he wants to set up quarantine as a link to his OCD really, really early on. And he wants it to be a key to who this character is. So let's move into some of the more technical aspects of this movie. What did you think about, let's say, you know, the editing or the costuming or the cinematography, anything like that?
1: I would say that this is Martin Scorsese's most accessible film. For sure. And granted, I say that only having seen maybe four now, Uh which he's directed a lot of films, uh, but... For me, this film was accessible because it has all of his traditional quick cuts. Yep. And yet, within those quick cuts, you're really just getting a long, meandering look at the life of Howard Hughes. Sure. Over a 20-ish year span. And so I look at that, and I you see all of Martin Scorsese's elements in the movie, mm-hmm. and yet there's a strong story that ties it all together. And so for me, I'm drawn in by the story, and that allows me to sit with Scorsese as we are at Catherine Hepburn's table, right. and he's just being peppered with questions. Right. Or as he's in the bathroom scrubbing his hands for the sixth time in the movie. Yeah. You just sit with him throughout the movie, and you're okay with it because you're like, "What? Like, what is going to happen to Howard? Where is this OCD going to take him?" Right. Well, and I think what you're what you're getting at too is that a really
0: great filmmaker he could employ tricks because he knows when to stop employing tricks and he's willing to just sit the camera down at a dinner table and let you see people behaving. But then he also knows that when, you know, DiCaprio's character, Howard Hughes goes to the hearings and the Senate hearings, you get these really fast pans, you get jump cuts, you get zooms. It's, it's really fast paced and it's edited quickly, but because you know that, that Scorsese knows when to be restrained, those moments work better.
1: Yeah. And in relation to Goodfellas, seeing this is another Scorsese film, the reason I struggled with Goodfellas and all of the tricks that he employs is because I didn't feel connected to the characters. I just didn't care about them as much. I didn't care about their outcome. Their story wasn't really being told. It just felt more like a general picture of life right whereas this movie i think connects to howard very early from him being a child in the bathtub with his mom scrubbing him to him struggling to get this movie made to moving through his struggle with ocd and the the women that he loves and all these things i really just feel like he connects so strongly with the character Mm -hmm. that all of those tricks and quit you know all the stuff that he does it doesn't distract me from Howard Hughes. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. And so, you know, some of the other tricks that that Scorsese employs, like I loved the flashbulb effect. You first get it when he's on the red carpet, but then every time he starts having a breakdown, even if there's not actually bright lights in the room, they convey it by putting this really bright light on Howard's face. And you understand that he's going into this really bad place in his mind. There's also this thing. Oh, go ahead. Which is one of the reasons why
1: I absolutely love the senate hearing scene oh yeah is because they set they set you up the whole movie with bright lights equals howard breaking down and even if it's just a small breakdown of being rude to a reporter or something bigger he always kind of has a breakdown when he's got all these bright lights and it kind of confuses him and whether or not it was purposeful that alan alda's character had the bright lights you know the spotlights put on him at the senate hearing those lights hit him and you see him retracting into himself yep and so the emotional payoff of him being able to fight off those demons and deliver an perfect performance in front of senate yeah is such a great emotional yeah. payoff
0: they did this one thing that i really wanted to point out where it happens a couple times in the movie it usually happens when howard's like looking in a mirror they fade the whole background out and then it's just a, like howard and blackness around him and being a movie musical nerd there's a director, Martin, uh, Morton da- da Costa. He directed The Music Man, which is like one of my all time favorites. It's a trick he used. And like, I've never really seen it used anywhere else. And so it just shows you how Scorsese uses these really interesting little tricks that he's picked up as like a film historian. But he uses them to such good effect because he's using it to show how Howard really does feel isolated. It's not just a camera trick. It's conveying something. So, Brad, one, one of the things that we were talking about. Was you had a really interesting question about the color in the movie, especially the
1: first part of the movie. I was actually just thinking that. So literally at the start of the movie, usually when I watch these movies, I'll text Bob a little bit. We don't want to spoil what we're going to say on the podcast right. or each other. But I was like, why is everything that is supposed to be green this weird shade of blue? And the thing for me was I was wondering if that was some sort of sign of insanity or this is how Howard Hughes sees the world. And when he gets cured, he'll see everything in green. Yeah. I was kind of wondering that as I saw it. And I but even now, I having seen the entire movie, I really don't know why he saw things in blue. So and I didn't notice it
0: too much until they got to the golf course. And then you're like, why is this golf? It, I mean, it looked like Boise State's football field. I was literally <laughs> about to say the
1: same thing. You're like, why? You know, is there going to be a goose like flying down and splashing? Right. It thinks it's water.
0: So here's where Martin Scorsese's genius as a film historian comes in, because it's for like the first 45 minutes of the movie. What he was doing was he was actually mimicking what a movie made in that time period would look like. So in the early thirties, when you finally get color footage, the way that they would, they would replicate color is you would film on two different color strips. I think it was like a cyan and a magenta or whatever it was, and they would combine them and they would make color footage. The problem is with only two, two frames of reference, two colors being recorded, you can
1: only make so many, colors. the
0: range of colors wasn't, wasn't that great. So, He was replicating that look in the early 30s. And then when you hit a certain point, I don't remember where it is. I think it's after Howard's crash into the beat field. uh, Scorsese then moves to indicating what Technicolor looked like. And Technicolor actually recorded on three separate color strips that they combined into one master negative. And so the color scheme kind of grows and you can replicate more colors. But he was doing it just because he loves movies that much. And he was trying to show this is the kind of footage Howard Hughes would have been working with at the time.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating to me, because for me, growing up watching old movies, whenever the Technicolor logo would come on the screen at the start of the film, usually after they had done all the cast and director and all that, it just felt like this big moment of like, we made this film in Technicolor. And so there's something about that 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 is really cool. I would have
0: never guessed that. Technicolor was really hard to film in because your camera, you know, the camera takes in light and it records it onto a film strip. And it had to literally be synced up perfectly because it's recording onto three separate strips of film at the same time that were then taken, processed and combined down into one negative. And so if anything was thrown off in that process,
1: like your film looked terrible. And there's something about that, that it's so easy for us here in 2019 to just assume that things are done so easily. And there's something brilliant about Howard Hughes, that he wasn't just an aviator or a filmmaker. He was the definition of an innovator. Right. And so even just looking at the process through which film was made, like you see the innovation of Martin Scorsese saying, I'm going to imitate this old style of filmmaking and transition into, you know, the technicolor where you actually got greens, Yeah. And it represents more closely to what reality is all about, because that's what film is all about in a certain way is representing reality and telling a story that we can you know uh, relate to and understand so that, so it's just really cool to me that Scorsese is able to capture that innovation yeah in the movie that you also see in Howard Hughes and the way he made airplanes and movies at the time
0: absolutely well Brad we have been sipping on this whiskey for a good solid half hour now let's give it a chat why don't we tell the people what we think of it All right guys, we are back again to try another whiskey. Today we are branching into new territory. Brad, what are we sipping on today?
1: One might say we're branching into the northern territories. Hey.
0: <laughs> we are trying Canadian whiskey today. This is a Canadian Club Classic 12-year that we got for $21, 21. So, the reason that that you can get a 12-year whiskey for $21 is I think the the whiskey community kind of frowns on canadian whiskey because usually it's a blend of other people's whiskeys that they just kind of age in canada huh i guess it's supposed to have lots of rye in it it's supposed to be aged for three years this bad boy was aged for 12 years 12 whole years this is like this this whiskey could be in the sixth grade right now yeah (laughs) so brad what are you picking up on the nose of this canadian club 12 year um i don't know there's some hints of moose We lost all of our Canadian <laughs> listeners just now. <laughs> Forget you guys. Uh, I do get a lot of uh, like maple. <laughs> yes, I know, I know it's Canadian, but seriously, it smells like maple. It smells kind of like brown sugar, but definitely you like get a,
1: a, you get a little bit of the rye on the nose. I think.
0: Yeah, it's got a little bit of spice to it. Um, we've been we've been kind of letting it mellow for a few seconds here, and in our nice Glen Cairn, we've got some nice Glen Cairn glasses we're drinking out of today. Yeah, um, yeah not super complex. It smells like uh, what you would expect kind of a younger bourbon to smell like, like maybe a three-year bourbon, as opposed to like a 12-year Canadian, you know?
1: Yeah. And it does kind of make you wonder what they're mixing it with that has that smell. Well,
0: I did look up some facts that this was actually aged in ex-bourbon barrels. So while bourbon has to be aged in a brand new barrel, Canadian whiskey can be aged in any kind of... There's no regulation. So they took old bourbon barrels and threw this into it. So it definitely picks up some of that sweet bourbon character
1: what's the proof on this you know i think it's
0: i think it's 80 proof Okay. should we check we should probably check. we probably should check yeah it's a solid 80 proof it's, yeah so yeah we're working with an 80 proof whiskey here uh brad
1: what are you tasting on this you know i i think i'm getting some you definitely get the rye um mm-hmm. like you said maple syrups in there i feel like i, I have a strong kind of grain feel corn maybe <laughs> yeah i don't know it's um it's not super
0: complex it's got some spice to it but it goes down really, really smooth, and it, you just kind of taste sweet. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like it's, uh, it's got some, some maybe some vanilla characteristics to it. I was picking yeah. up maybe like a little bit of a spice, like a clove or something. Yeah, um, but it's not something that you're like really swishing around your mouth, you know, for for seconds on end. It's drinkable. It's smooth. I think it's exactly what you would want out of a twenty-one dollar whiskey.
1: Yeah, I actually really like it. Uh, There's nothing specific about it that makes it stand out. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it'll get a very high score, but it's also not, there's nothing about it that makes it bad. No. Uh, How about the finish? You know, I was actually just thinking about that. It's a little bitter on my palate after it sat there for a minute or so.
0: Yeah, it it really uh, kind of burned going down a little bit for me. Mm. It's warming my whole chest cavity up right now. But one thing that I've noticed about it is that you know, if you expect something that was in a barrel for 12 years to kind of be a little thicker or, or have some more complexity.
1: One might say it has more <laughs> viscosity. Viscosity, Yeah. This
0: doesn't. I mean, it's like a really thin mouthfeel. Yeah. Uh, so I can't really tell how I feel about it. I like the flavor, but it's just not a complex
1: whiskey at all. Yeah.
0: So what would you give it on the nose? Nose, I'd probably give it like a five.
1: Okay. I Yeah, I would actually would probably agree. Five was what I was thinking.
0: Taste. Um, I like my whiskey sweet. Yeah. I'm kind of a sucker for I mean, that's why I like bourbon so much, but still you're just, like, you're just a sweet guy, Bob. Oh, thank you. I would give it a six. I was actually going to give it a seven. All right. So I gave it a six. You gave it a seven
1: on taste finish. You know, for me, the finish as it sits, it, it's kind of bitter and I'm not a big fan. So I'm going to give that a three on I, finish. See, the funny thing is I'm
0: not picking up the bitterness you are, but it's just unimpressive to me. So yeah. I would also give it a three. Yeah. And then we get to overall balance, which is, you know, you want it to not have one kind of thing that peaks or stands out too much. Like, you don't want it to hit the front of your mouth and then disappear. How do you feel about, from start to finish, the balance of this whiskey?
1: It's a very well-balanced whiskey. It starts off smooth. It goes down smooth. Mm -hmm. Like you said, it's a little thin. Yeah. um, Thinner than what we've been drinking. Um, So I, I would
0: give it a five. Yeah, this is where balance kind of our metric is kind of weird because if it's just unimpressive all the way through, does that mean like it was perfectly balanced? Yeah, (laughs) You know know what I mean? I would probably, this was a one in every category, which means 10, 10 out of 10 on balance. I would also give it a five. So let's, let's tally up our scores here. I've got a 19 overall on this, Brad, you're sitting pretty at a 20. So we're talking a 19.5, you know, and I feel like maybe we're being a little critical because this, this was a good bottle of whiskey for 20 bucks. Honestly, you're not going to be able to get a 12-year aged whiskey for that price point and be able to kind of show it off to your friends. Yeah. If you've got friends that are kind of newer into whiskey, you're not going to give them a really smoky, peaty scotch. Right. You're going to give them something like this. Right. And I think it's enjoyable.
1: Yeah, I would say that compared to other Canadian whiskeys I've had in the past, this gave me a favorable impression. I would definitely
0: choose this over like a Crown Royal for sure. Yeah. That
1: Crown... We'll probably review Crown at some point, and I might be tipping my hand, but I've never fully enjoyed Crown. Yeah. It's thin, doesn't have enough flavor, it kind of tastes like water. Yep. And so, I would compare this very favorably. I would recommend it to somebody. I think I would recommend it as well, even
0: though we've only scored it about halfway. uh, It's definitely, from some of the other ones that we scored halfway, like your Benchmarks, Yeah, this is definitely better than Benchmark.
1: Yeah. This is something I could use for a mixer, but I could also drink on its own and be happy. Yep. All right, guys, so that has been Canadian
0: Club Classic 12-Year. Brad, what do you say we talk some more about the Aviator? The real question
1: is, would Howard Hughes drink Canadian Club Classic 12-Year?
0: I think it is the way of the future. The way way of the the future. future. The way of the future.
1: The way of the future.
0: Let's get back into the Aviator. All right, so that was Canadian Club 12-Year. We are continuing to sip on it. We will be extra toasty by the end of this episode. Extra toasty, eh? And we're still losing Canadian listeners. Brad, what do you... Uh, I think we should talk about some performances. We haven't really gotten into anybody except DiCaprio. And this movie, as we said, full of great performances.
1: At, there's so many. I literally looked at the first list of cast names on the credits Yeah, yeah. And was just like, oh my god, It is stacked. This, th- Yeah, this movie is stacked with great actors let's talk about I think we should talk about Kate Blanchett Cate Blanchett she won the Oscar
0: like deservedly so you can't ignore her like, have you seen anything with Catherine Hepburn in it before
1: yes okay McClanton so you're familiar
0: with was oh all right. Yeah. the John Wayne film or was that Maureen O'Hara yeah I think that was Maureen O'Hara uh, okay then so you've never seen Catherine Hepburn uh, are you familiar with her
1: was Maureen O'Hara also the one uh, what was the Irish film with the, the Quiet Man? Man? That was Marina O'Hara. Yeah. See, I'm just i right, so Maureen O'Hara.
0: Brad thinks she deserved the Oscar for playing Catherine Hepburn, but doesn't know what Catherine Hepburn was. I will I will vouch for Cate Blanchett and say her Catherine Hepburn was incredible. And what I loved about it is that it wasn't it wasn't just an impersonation. She played her as a real person. She wasn't playing her as what she looked like on the screen. She really embodied that character. And they give her more emotional range than almost anybody else in the film. You see her cry. You see her get hurt. I do know for a fact that you were not a fan of the scene where she broke up with Howard.
1: Not at all. Fill me in on that a little bit. So when she came in and broke up with Howard, and this might be just because the filmmaking, we were watching the movie from Howard's point of view. Yeah. So you see things uh, you see you are sympathetic towards him. But she comes in and is just like, hey there, Shunny. I've fallen in love with another man. She and there's nothing you can do about it. Be mature.
0: Was he Was he dating Edward G. Robinson? <laughs>
1: Pretty much. Man,
0: <laughs> <laughs> <See? laughs> Break up with you, see? Tell me that's not what she sounded like, though. I think, watching it back this time, I really think that she was justified in what she did. Howard was pushing her away. And then he said something like, you know, who do you think you're talking to? You're nothing but a movie star, you
1: know? It, yeah, but she had demeaned just- her she had just demeaned him and broken his heart. So I, for, I'm not excusing him being a jerk. Yeah. But she had just broken his heart.
0: Yeah. But I do think that when she, she gave him the call to be mature, she at least tried to be forthcoming and say, listen, like this has clearly not been working for a while. You've been pushing me away. I'm, I'm in love with somebody else. And then he resorts to insulting her essentially.
1: Don't be unkind. You know, you, uh, you want to, you want to go? Huh? Go on. Uh, actresses are cheap in this town, darling. I got a lot of money. Howard, please. This is beneath you. No, no. This, this is exactly me. You come in here out of the blue and tell me you're leaving me just like that and you have the nerve to expect graciousness? I expect a little maturity. I expect you to face the situation like an adult who- doesn't. Talk down to me. Don't you ever talk down to me. You are a movie star. Nothing more.
0: So, I don't know. I was on Team Catherine in that moment.
1: That moment just killed me a little bit because she, the big thing for me was, as soon as she said that, I flashed back to the moment where she told him, like, Howard, don't worry. I am on your team. I'm on your side. I'm for you. You're safe with
0: me. Mm, Yeah.
1: And then she came in and said. And breaks his heart. I get that. I'm in love with another man.
0: Well, and, that, and yes. as we all know, uh, you know, Catherine Hepburn had a decades long affair with Spencer Tracy. They right. were one of the most famous Hollywood couples of all time. Spencer Tracy was married, a good Catholic. But what I loved about what they said with Howard, too, was that even after Katie, Catherine Hepburn breaks his heart, he always loves her. And it's clear throughout the film that she w- she was the love of his life and She comes back after Howard has had his breakdown and has secluded himself in his screening room. And through the door, she's saying, I came to thank you for buying up all those pictures that the press took, you know, the paparazzi basically took of me and Spencer Tracy. So he was continuing to look out for her even after they broke up. And I, I really loved how they portrayed that love story. You know, it wasn't a romantic. It didn't have a happy ending, but that's what it means to love somebody.
1: He does always look out for her and she never repays him. I don't think I and she comes to worst. visit him
0: when he's at his lowest point, dude.
1: Yeah. To say, hey, thanks for coming up. My no, love that affair. Was a, that
0: was a pretext for going. to He clearly needed help. She came to try to help him. Who actually helped him was Ava Gardner. Ava, Ga- Well, I don't know. Ava Gardner was kind of a jerk, too. <laughs> she was. Kind love of the... what you've done with the place. But he's got it all like strung up with tape and he's like, you're in the germ free zone.
1: Yeah, but I think there's a part of that. I think that there was something healthy about that for her not to act surprised for her. To for just, sure. At, like, yeah, to, like, to this be witty
0: and sarcastic. It definitely helped him out. One of the things I noticed in that sequence where Ava Gardner comes over to Howard's house to help him get ready mentally and physically for these Senate hearings. They do these really cool insert shots where you you finally get a sense of how bad Howard has digressed. Like she's helping him shave and then they they put the camera in the sink and you see all the gross water with his facial hair. And he, you, you get this sense of, like, I understand why he doesn't want to touch
1: that. Why he thinks everything is laden with germs. Yeah. I will say the Ava Gardner scenes, I couldn't figure out why Ava Gardner was helping him. That's probably one of the few parts of the movie that I thought Scorsese didn't explain super mm. well. Was why did Ava Gardner like him? Was it just the fact that he was a millionaire and had lots of money? like I don't know what drew her to him that she if, was the one he called. I mean, the implication was
0: that they both liked their independence because she seemed to be fine with him kind of screwing around on her too, and she was doing the same thing to him. So I don't know if it was just kind of like a mutual. They used each other, but they they still cared for each. Other. They didn't they didn't love each other. Genuine friends with friends. Genuine I think, benefits. Yeah, I guess so. They definitely had genuine benefits. Speaking of genuine benefits. I want to talk about probably my favorite scene in the movie, and it's a small scene, but it's the
1: scene where Howard first takes Catherine Hepburn flying. If we actually had a sponsor for this podcast, that would have been that was like a perfect segue. Speaking of genu- <laughs> genuine, benefits, I want to talk to you about Clorox. Lights. Zero,
0: zero percent financing. On a- <laughs> All right. No, but the, the scene where he takes Catherine Hepburn flying for the first time. Yeah, because you really get everything that you need from this movie is in that scene. You get his love for aviation. He's teaching her what it's like to, you know, to feel the vibration through the steering wheel. And it, it gets very sensual because he's talking about use your fingertips, you know, things like that. But then you wow. also seriously, you also see that he's wrapped the steering wheel in cellophane because he doesn't want to get dirty. But then he has this beautiful moment of sharing that wheel with her and not caring what her, what's on her hands. And then he gives her a sip out of his bottle of milk like it it demonstrates the level of trust Howard has in Catherine Hepburn that he never shares with anyone the rest of the movie because she breaks his heart. She <laughs> he breaks
1: his. What was your favorite scene in the movie, Brad? Uh, my favorite scene in the movie was probably the Senate hearing, that whole sequence. The, the yeah. Senate hearing into honestly from the Senate hearing to the end. I know that that's multiple scenes, right? But there's something about from the Senate hearing on that you get the emotional payoff that you need. From him just, you know, devolving mm-hmm. into this OCD mess, peeing in milk bottles lined up against the wall of his thing. Yeah. To me, that was the grossest thing. Oh, for sure. When there's like 200 milk bottles yeah. full of his own urine.
0: And that was like what a great pull back from the camera to just you just see. Ro- and it it doesn't exist in a real space. There's never going to be a room that big to hold that many milk bottles. But
1: it, but if there was Howard Hughes would own that <laughs> room. Have, yeah. And he would have filled it with pee. Yeah. There was something that was one of the first times. So obviously, film can only hit us in two senses, right? The things you see and the things you hear. Hmm, sure. That scene, I could almost smell how bad that room smelled. Oh yeah. As you see the bottles fill up, yep. You just and and partially that might be because I've worked in hospitals before and I've smelled a lot of really bad things. Sure. But I could almost smell how bad that room smelled. Yeah. And that, like, I don't know why, but that was a moment for me where I was just like, oh, Scorsese. Yeah. What are you doing? He, he really like went this? there, man. didn't Yeah, he? it was horrible. But for me, the scenes, the emotional payoff of him dealing with the bright lights and all of the people watching him and the massive crowd that he can't control. Yeah. Which is the, the, the essence of OCD is I have to control everything. Yeah. And so he's in that scene and he overcomes that. And then that transitions in it into him taking off in the airplane. Yeah. And actually allowing it to fly. Yep. And that whole scene is just such good emotional payoff. Followed by. And this is what I love about this
0: movie is that it's not your standard biopic. You know, this came out the same year as Ray, which Jamie Foxx won the Oscar for. And I know we're both upset because we think DiCaprio deserved it. Here's a
1: quick thought on that. Okay. Catherine Hepburn won Best Supporting Actress. Yes, for her portrayal of a very eccentric, unique person. Yeah. Jamie Foxx won.
0: And I would still say that that Kate Blanchett's performance is better than Jamie Foxx's. Jamie Foxx did an amazing Ray Charles impression. I don't think Kate Blanchett was doing an impression. You know what I mean? Like she had yeah. the voice, but she lived in that character. Yeah. Anyway, all that to say, if you watch Ray. It is your standard lifetime by it ends with him at this triumphant moment where the state of Georgia says we're going to bring on uh, Georgia on my mind is our state song. And it's Ray Charles up up on the podium looking so happy. And then it fades out and you get this great emotional send off. Scorsese is not going to allow us to do that. You know, you get the payoff of the Senate hearings. He finally has his little victory over the government and over one trip. And then and then you get the payoff of the plane flying but then Scorsese reminds us this is not where the story ends with Howard Hughes. It's he still he has, has a very sad end to his life. And he's like you said, he's he's still dealing with this. Yeah. What did you
1: think of the ending? The ending was so good for me. And I know that I feel like a lot of people would take it as a dark ending that Well, yeah, he had these great moments, but he's still addicted – not addicted. He still has OCD, Mm -hmm. and he's still going to struggle with it, and his life is still going to suck. For me, I was almost encouraged by the ending. To me, it felt like a hopeful ending, because the largest part of his falling into OCD is that he didn't have anybody to help him with it. Yeah. Because she left him. broke his heart. (laughs) Right. right. And so – but the cool thing here was you saw the two people in his life, John C. Riley and Adam. No, not Adam Scott. His main engineer that oh, helps him build. Odie, I think his name was. Yeah. yeah Who was great, by the way. Unsung hero of the film. So many great performances by third level actors. Absolutely. In the movie. But you saw John C. Riley and his main engineer, Odie, take him to the bathroom, kind of shelter him from the storm that would ensue if he was found out. Mm hmm. And say, hey, we're going to find him help. We're going to get a doctor. So to me, it was almost a hopeful ending of like, yes, this is reality. OCD doesn't just go away when you beat the government Hmm. or fly your airplane. He still is going to struggle with it. But maybe he has a team around him that's starting to see that for what it is. And they want to help him through it. I think
0: that's a really optimistic way of reading the ending. I didn't read it that way. I saw it as... When he's having his breakdowns and he's always repeating, you know, the way of the future, the way of the future, the last shot of the movie is him in the mirror. And he's not really repeating it compulsively. He's he's repeating it with these like really emotional pauses in between. And he's like telling himself the way of the future. To me, it it said that he always had his eye on the horizon. He was always looking to like what he could innovate, what he could do new. And instead of building these amazing planes and changing the course of history, his future is being stuck in this rut and it's always going to continue to repeat itself. That's how I read the ending. So I did see it more as kind of a tragic ending than you did. But that's the beauty of what Scorsese is doing is he leaves it open to interpretation. That's really depressing, Bob. It is super depressing, yeah. but, but it was good. Way to make all of our listeners really sad. Well, you know, I do what I can. Yeah. Brad, any final
1: thoughts on the Aviator? Ten out of Ten. 10 out of 10 wow my absolute first and, and the thing for me is i'm very man i don't want to give 10s out of 10 yeah yeah. i really genuinely don't nine and a half is usually the highest i would go this movie was so good it's a good movie like leonardo and Kate blanchett's performances were to- i i mean over the top phenomenal yeah Scorsese, his use of filmography, his use of the cuts that he uses, I, just brilliant. The music, we didn't even talk about the music in the movie. No. The music helps the movie flow so smoothly from scene to scene. I, This is phenomenal. 10 out of 10, I absolutely loved it. I'd give it, oh, I don't know if I want to give it a 9 or a 9.5. It's better. It's point three 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 9.3333 repeating.
0: <laughs> if you've seen The Aviator. I encourage you to go back and watch it again and look at it as the masterpiece that it is, because it is Scorsese's unsung masterpiece. It should be ranked up there, in my opinion, with Goodfellas, with Taxi Driver, with Raging Bull, with The Departed. It is phenomenal. And because of that, I'm going to go out and say, you know what? Nine point five. Yeah. Nine point five for me. Ten for Brad. But what do you think? Let us know your thoughts. Hop on Twitter. Tweet at us at film whiskey or you know what you can do you can give us a call and we will throw your voice on the air with the sultry sounds of our own give us a call at 216-800-5923 once again that's 216-800-5923 we will be back next week reviewing the 1959 billy wilder classic some like it hot for the film and whiskey podcast i'm bob book i'm brad g we'll see you next time